I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. I'm starting out the podcast this week with a simple message to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, watching our videos on YouTube, coming out to the events, design houses, and remote broadcasts. Thank you for reaching out on social media, and better yet, in person, to tell me you liked the show, you disagreed with me about something you heard, or to make a suggestion for future guests or topics. The show is now in its sixth year. This is episode number 200. I wanted to do something special this week, and for the past few months, I've been listening back to past episodes, starting with the very first episode of Convo by Design, recorded in early 2014 with artist Douglas C. Bloom. Since then, I've recorded over 300 individuals in one-on-one interviews, panel discussions, group conversations, and project tours. The show has been all over Southern California and adjacent states. We've recorded from Palm Springs, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Tucson, the Grand Canyon, and as far away as Marfa, Texas, and Big Sky, Montana. Convo by Design has taken you to the Pasadena Showcase House for the Arts, Waddle's Mansion, West Edge Design Fair, West Week, Modernism Week, LA Design Festival, Fall Market, and tours of homes with some of the world's greatest and most talented creatives. I'm not going to name them all here, although I would like to, but I really can't for sake of time. And of course, I, I can't mention everyone, but if you keep listening to the podcast, you will, at some point, hear from them again. I've scoured through past episodes so you can hear again from some amazing, interesting, thought-provoking, and wonderful people. We revisit moments with architects, designers, set decorators, musicians, chefs, makers of policy, and others who are leading the way as it relates to the way that we live. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to tell you why I do this podcast. I've been asked about the story in the past, and I do love telling the story because it's... Uh, this show was created uh, from the ashes of one of my greatest failures. I'm a brand manager by trade, and after many years in brand development with companies like CBS and iHeartRadio, I was consulting for California Home and Design Magazine. After a lifetime loving design and architecture, I was thrilled to be working in the industry. At that time, I got a chance to produce my first ever design house called Small Space Big Style. We had designers like Molly Lukemeyer, Azadeh Shladovsky, Brian Patrick Flynn, Aaron Valencic, Christian May, uh, Annette and Mary from Potted, and uh, really, just an amazing group. After the penthouse opened, we had events, parties, meetings, all kinds of really interesting content opportunities, and I recorded not a single moment of it. Sure, I, I have the Leave Behind books and a box of the issues showing the 12 pages of edit, and if you look for the design house on YouTube or anywhere online, you'll find two videos produced by the magazine. Um, and I remember feeling like all this work went into a project and it just disappeared into the ether. So that was in 2012. The design house closed in 2013 and I spent all of the remainder of 2013 planning and working on Convo by Design. I had another podcast project prior to this one, but it wasn't what I wanted. Further proof that our first conceptual idea isn't always the final product, but this one was, and we launched it in 2014. And along that same line of thinking, Convo by Design hasn't stopped changing since the very first episode. There are a couple of things that have remained 
constant. One of those is the partnership with our presenting sponsor, Snyder Diamond. Thank you, Russ, Dana Joy, Flavia, Adam, and the entire team at Snyder Diamond for your continued friendship, partnership, and support. It's funny, when I started this podcast five years ago, we were celebrating the 65th anniversary of Snyder Diamond. And now we're celebrating 70 years serving Southern California's design and architecture community. Russ Diamond is the second generation president of this family owned and operated business. But he's, he's far more than that. Russ has assembled a fantastic team of smart and talented people who provide best in class service, knowledge based sales and a customer first environment. When you combine that with a finely curated family of products, you have something special. That something special is an incredible shopping experience for pros and homeowners alike. Side note, many of the products you find at Snyder Diamond also come from family-owned businesses or still operate by those very same principles upon which they were founded. This is why you go to Snyder Diamond. You know that you're going to find amazing products and you'll be surrounded by equally amazing service. It's not easy serving the crazy talented design and architecture community in Southern California. And to be doing it all at such a high level for 70 years, that's really saying something. Go and check it out for yourself. You can find three Los Angeles area Snyder Diamond locations in Pasadena, North Hollywood, and Santa Monica. Or check them out online at SnyderDiamond.com. Over 200 episodes, we have heard from many designers. I love being around designers because the ideas rarely stop flowing. And when talking about design, there are so many different styles and personalities. Here are a few of the designers you've heard from over the past five years. Esty Stanley. Um, and I think a lot of people, and I try to tell people this, like they don't understand like how much work it takes to get someone's house done yeah. and, and how many hours. It's not just like going on restoration hardware and picking a room. I mean, you could do that, but then you don't need to hire a designer to do that. You right. know what I'm saying? And I yeah. think they've done a great job of making that happen. But I think that's like probably one of the most important things. And make sure that you really like their style, their energy, everything that they've done. Jamie Rummerfield. Yeah, when you're in alignment with something you love to do, it, it things come to you and it always works out. Like we've always, when we had our showroom with design projects, whenever we just trusted our instinct and followed our intuition on jobs, it always shined through and really stayed true to who we are. That was always the best outcome and it always worked out, out beyond our expectations. So, and that's the shop was the same way. Kyle Schooneman. So uh, the book agent that I went to, uh, that was a friend of a friend's, uh, she, she kept pushing it back and saying, make it better, you know, make it better. So this pitch, we, we kind of honed and honed and honed. And so by the time it was, was time to approach publishers, we got multiple offers. And it, I was surprised by the interest level. I wasn't actually surprised, right? Because I, I believed it. It was something that I felt was real. So I, it's not so much I was surprised, but you're always like, well, someone actually agrees with me. But so from that, from that book, when it came out, that's when I was actually surprised because now it's like all of these uh, retailers are approaching specifically wanting to talk to the people that I'm talking to. Timothy Corrigan. We started out with a, with a, a USP and a, and a slogan of a world of comfortable elegance. Um, we started positioning ourselves from the very beginning on this aspect of, uh, of timeless, comfortable elegance. And again, 
timeless is so important because you've we've all walked into houses where it clearly says, oh, that was done in 1968 and that was done in 2012 and that was done in 2019. And you really want it, to, you want it to be more timeless, to not be as specific as any one period of time because you want something to, that's going to stand the test of time. So we tend to stay away from things that are too trendy and too specific to any one particular period. So I think that's one of the key things. It's one of the key elements of, of our success. But I think also the aspect of really tying into whatever you define elegant. So one person may define elegant as being cutting edge contemporary. Another person might find it as, as 18th century. We work with whatever they decide they want is their, their term or thought of what is elegant. But then we make it comfortable and timeless. Ryan Sagan. You have to learn to read people and you have to learn to tell people to shut up sometimes and just stop and just to trust you because they talk too much and they think too much and there's a reason why they hired you but they forget that reason and I just have to reassure them over and over and over again that I know what I'm doing. There's a reason why you're a doctor. There's a reason why I'm a designer. Just trust me. And every time I push, they always say thank you for pushing me. Cesar Geraldo. Cesar just looks at me and he says, I'm ready to inject myself with venom. <laughs> because of what la last year, you just you were here working. Big time. It was, it was so hard. It was, but it was a work of love. Right? You know, absolutely, yeah. Teaming up with all these brands, um, coordinating with everyone, all the schedules, um, the logistics, uh, the timing, you know, to put a whole, you know, installation together in such a short amount of time. It left me just like ready for some, uh, you know. Yes. Totally. But it's interesting because putting something like this together is all the pressure of a design house and none of the lead up time. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's all. <laughs> what did you do this year? I did a, uh, the installation for the uh, Karma Lounge. Okay. The oh, new, beautiful. Yeah, yes, that's, that's one of my installations. And um, I also did, a, it's a lot smaller, um, with Tidelli, I uh, commissioned uh, this artist from Paris. His name is Mambo who is doing the, uh, 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 the new uh, handbag line for Moinat, which is, the, uh, uh, is a high-end luxury brand for Louis Vuitton. And uh, he did a mural for us at the, uh, by the Tideli Cafe. So that was, that was also a nice touch to bring to West Edge. Oh, that's great. Yeah, from Paris to West Edge. That is outstanding. You have to give that to Megan and Troy. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yes, they're like the Ken and the Barbie of design. Ryan White. Yeah, it does feel a little odd, right? Like leaving the space. It kind of feels like we went through a bit of like a summer camp in a way, like a summer retreat weekend getaway with uh, new and old friends. Um, and it, I think it went so well that it's a little bit bittersweet to end it because lots of these times things don't go so well. You know, it's a little more difficult. This was a very simple experience with everyone that was involved. So yeah, it's a little bittersweet, I guess. And it's weird too because with a with a residential project that you'll work on, right? You'll hand it off, but you know they're going to live in this house for 20, 30 years or longer and you know maybe eventually they sell, but they're going to they're going to live in it, they're going to love it. They this is one of those things where all this work goes in and it's it's for 3 days and then it it goes away. Right? I mean, it's kind of I guess I now know what set decorators feel like for movies or commercials and I've never been that type of designer, so like you said, my designs um, kind of, I guess, live on forever until someone redoes them or I redo them or whatever the, whatever the case might be, but they live for a while. Um, and you're right, this kind of all comes down in a short amount of time. So, 
Cliff Fong. I think it's all really about the, the person. And kind of one of the really nice things about our time is that I, I think people aren't restricted to living in in first-tier cities in America. It, it used to be, there used to be a time, um, maybe it's easy for me to say because I'm from New York and I live in Los Angeles, but there used to be a time where people would only consider living in New York or Los Angeles if they were in some creative industry, um, whether it's entertainment or design or fashion, you know, and then, and then, you know, the financial sector obviously is, is largely centered in, in the, in uh, New York. Um, but now because there's so many people who live more kind of free form existences because it's so easy to do business online or through email correspondence or Skype conferences that people can really live anywhere and, and travel to where they need to for work. And, and maybe that's actually a little more interesting than, than the obligation of living in the same city every day and, and having kind of a daily grind to, to, to deal with. So there are a lot of very interesting um, entrepreneurs, industry creative, interesting creative people, executives, who are choosing just to live outside their city centers or the normal city centers, and in, in the way that they might create create a life for themselves in, in those other areas, other territories, I think it's just as progressive or as edgy as if they were living in the city. That doesn't that doesn't change um, because the environment changes. I, I think uh, I think people are you know open to creating whatever they need to create wherever they are. Lori Dennis. So what I did was um, I said. Let's take the show on the road. So we picked this. I had a client at the time who sold AGL shoes. They're $400 ballet flats and Nordstrom's. And I said, where, where are you selling the most shoes? Because wherever you're selling the most shoes, they're the most designers in those places. And I don't want to go to the regular places. I don't want to go to New York and LA. They have stuff there already. Who's selling shoes? Who's got designers in a place where good stuff isn't showing up as frequently? It was Austin. Austin is a cool place. It's a rock and roll kind of a town. So we got this old dirty theater, this old rock and roll theater, and we just put the word out and sponsors just started jumping on board. I mean, it was our energy. We knew we had a hit and it was a two day deal. So there were really 18 courses we started with and um, we just taught uh, some business strategies. We taught some inspiration. Um, we brought in there some real estate agents to talk about the market and how that affects and everybody just networked together at the end of the, at the end of the day, we, we were all in our pajamas in the hotel and we brought all the, the drinks and the snacks and whatnot that we had left over and we're just sitting there and everyone was so jazzed and like helping each other. And there was a camaraderie. We've spoken with some of the best and brightest minds in architecture today. Of those, here are some standouts like Stephen Francis Jones discussing design challenges in restaurant development and new options in manufactured buildings like shipping containers. They're not a cheap alternative, but they're, they've got the cool factor, you know, and, but, and then they're also mobile, you know, so you could, uh, you know, I, I have been kind of conceiving the shipping containers as being like the bridge between brick and mortar and food trucks because, um, you know, I think that, uh, that that has been, you know, the the um, the brick and mortar to build the restaurant, you know, these days is just so expensive. I mean, I don't I don't know how people can do it, you know. <laughs> and the commitment that you're making. I mean, you know, you're you know, hopefully you have a a, a space, you know, but um, you know, you're signing a 15 year lease, and you're you know, you're putting in a couple million dollars to build the thing. So we did a restaurant in Santa Monica. Uh, it was called Anisette. 
and it was on second is on second street and it was in the um, the old clock tower building and it was a bank before and we like put in this is like 2007 you might see where i'm going here but we put a lot of money into this, making this space that was a bank and turned it into a restaurant and so much infrastructure and helicoptering in, you know, the, the exhaust fans and, and um, you know, he got a good deal for the, for the, the property, you know, and he's in good terms for, for rent and everything. And so, um, but the economy took a dive. And at that time, you know, we just couldn't, couldn't keep it going and it's now it's a place called misfit this is michael rackley i think it's both left brain and right brain i, th I think it's really a marriage of the, the the technical side and the artistic side do you tilt one way or the other i tilt more to the artistic side but i think a, a, a practice has to have a little bit of both so it's i think the next part of your question is it's really not architecture is really not a one person um endeavor it's really a team or collaborative effort you need you need people with different expertises to bring a project together. And this is a 1928 unreinforced brick masonry building that originally housed the Angelus shoe polish. So for 50 years they were making shoe polish in this. And uh, my kids went to school right next door. It's called Turning Point. And I was uh, dropping them off at school one day. I ran into the owner, Paul Angelus, and we struck up a conversation. And he had voiced the opinion that one day he wanted to sell and retire and move on and I told him what a wonderful building he had although it was in terrible shape I could see the bones and I said you know when you're ready to sell I'm ready to buy and about a year later he approached me and said you know I think it's time for me to move on you know Culver City is uh, changing they're moving the sort of the industrial users out and the creative office users into this area um, so we struck a deal and um, a few years later we ended up buying the building and and renovating it, but it was an extensive renovation, as you can imagine. He had underground storage tanks, and there were chemicals everywhere. It was 50 years of neglect, so if, if you can imagine, uh, it took uh, took about 16 months to turn this thing back into what it, you see today. Here's an absolute gem from Ward Jewel. Every every project is different. It's funny because you know you see all these lots, and they're all about the same size. But every project is different. It has to do with what the client wants, obviously. But every site has its own little little feeling as far as where where the light comes from, where the sun is, where the you know if it's where the breeze is coming from, and how the topography is. You know, what for instance, my house here, the, the the lot went from the street sloped back gently to the backyard. And when I first bought this house, it had it was two feet above the grade in the backyard. So I lowered this back part here, as you can see, it's now a ten foot ceiling to get closer to grade. Every house has every project has something unique, unique about it. And, it's, and the key is to find that, is try to find out what those characteristics are and then make it work. And, and part of that too is fighting trends. And fight, so let me back up. So here in Los Angeles, Southern California, you started in, in the 70s. Uh, the 70s were not a, was not a good time. In Southern California for architecture. I look beyond that. Now, one of the things, too, I, I ended up doing a lot of traditional work. Obviously, I went to SciArc. I'd love to be doing more modern work. I'd done plenty of modern work. But I um, grew up in a Wallace Neff house, the Getz house, and I was exposed to 
something simple as molding. Well, how, what is molding in a house? Well, it's, it does an amazing thing to a house, you know. Um, so I have this affinity for it, and also I cared enough about the styles to explore them, to understand them, to know what works in a specific style. And the thing that I was looking at, the 70s, the mistake a lot of people have made is they don't bother to open a book. They can't even just open a book and look at, okay, I'm going to do a Mediterranean house. We were just talking about Mediterranean houses. Open a book. Take a drive to Santa Barbara. Walk down State Street. Take a look at the details, how it's done. It's, it's, it's actually very simple. But you know, actually, be able to synthesize it and make, you know, make something in a in a specific style, make it look like it's timeless. It ha- and I know that's a that's that's a, a cliche. Takashi and I talks about building to your surroundings. Well, we always look, or I always look at the surroundings. That's a huge part of it. So, you know, our architecture, or our design, it's it, it's not cookie cutter, and it it doesn't have. Um, a set uh, palette of materials or set language. Each house or each project is is custom, um, bespoke, tailored, however you want to put it, very specific to the particular aspects of the place and the clients, the people. So whether it's like a suburban tract in Irvine that may be really ultra homogenous in some ways, there's something there that we can latch onto and find something positive about or comment on um, that we would spin in a creative way and then make our project unique for the client. We we don't want to stand out in a bad way, but but we want to, you know, be distinct and make a statement and be special uh, in any case, but always contextual. You know, always trying to riff and understand the context that we're in. Cliff Fong on opportunity, available resources, and the endless opportunity creativity provides. You know, uh, most of that sort of complaining was about how limited opportunities were or how limited resources are. And creativity is one of those renewable resources that has no, there's no, it's, it's bottomless. So the idea that, I, that more people are doing interesting creative work means to me that more people should be supported to pursue this kind of work because this is what obviously what moves things forward but this is what could also you know change the way we think about how how we address our economic concerns in this country sarah lawrenson gave us a tour of the neutra vdl house in silver lake cal poly owns the property and she is not only a member of the architecture department at cal poly she is the home's custodian and primary resident here is sarah's take on neutra's lasting legacy i think there's a lot of things that we can take from this and that people are why people are so interested in coming here are you know architects primarily but also people interested in design and it has to do with kind of designing with economy which i think is an issue that we're still very interested in about this issue of kind of high density of how do you make something feel really kind of gracious and livable but also have a lot of different you know make maximize the space we have in a way that's very artful Um, I think it's also about an aesthetic which is really a kind of consideration of of how you see from the space out and then how you see what the building looks like so certainly there's a lot of you know things that we can learn from the way that it was put together so artfully and kind of to 
to really kind of reinforce these ideas of planar operations and these ways of kind of constructing a, a space. To live and design in downtown L.A., from 2016 at West Week. This was fun. This was just a fun panel with a lot of participants, but a very good topic. It was to live and design in LA, featuring Spencer Nicosi, Aaron and Ian Bessler, Laura Napala, Daniel Rago, Monica Apascar, Lawrence Azarad, and moderated by Carlo Caccavelli. This clip features a brief chat about adaptations one must make when choosing to live and or work in any downtown area, but specifically L.A. in particular. Um, some of you live in downtown, right? You live in downtown, but and who else? You guys live in downtown. You don't, right? And what about you? I've lived in three different buildings in downtown. And you still live in downtown? <laughs> no, not anymore. Okay. But you are working downtown, so what's your workspace like? It's, well, okay, we share a space and with a colleague of mine from UCLA, his name's Andrew Kovacs, and he uh, curates and maintains a website called Archive of Affinities. I'm sure some of you have been to it, uh, which is more about uh, the, a, a kind of collection of things. So half of our office is a, a living collection of stuff, of everything from around Los Angeles that, um, and, and elsewhere that might be considered architectural. Um, and, it, and it just continues to grow. And then the other side, our side of the office is um, like white tables from Ikea. It's more office based. So we have a kind of split between what might be a production studio and what might be considered a very sort of like typical office with computers and, and shelving and storage on one side. And then on the other side, um, something that is like constantly changing and continuing to grow and uh, that's sort of influenced by various things around us. And then just to kind of complete the the circle for LA, we share the floor with uh, a production space, so they rent out the floor to uh, filming shoots, and uh, it tends to be a lot of like exercise videos, and uh, oh, uh, uh, and, and kind of like small scale pilots for like ABC and CBS, and so that's kind of interesting, just thinking about the kind of turnover. So they shot a McDonald's commercial across, you know, on our floor the other day, and uh, and so there's just this constant kind of setting up and taking down and setting up and taking down, and whether that's you know flats and sets and things like that, and I think in a way that kind of has uh, gotten itself into our subconscious, this kind of uh, necessity to build up really fast and take down mm -hmm. very fast sure. and to turn over incredibly quickly. In 2016, Westweek from the Pacific Design Center included a conversation entitled Rebels of Design, moderated by Erica Heat of Interiors Magazine, and featured Eric Chang, Patrick Tai, and Cliff Fong. First, you'll hear Eric Chang on making mistakes, then Cliff on experience, and finally Patrick and Eric offered their views on diversity in design. These ideas all come together to form a really interesting idea about taking risks, making mistakes, and breaking through. And isn't that what rebels do? I mean, this guy said, uh, you know, he knows people are going to die on the way there, but we have to do it. I mean, who says that these days? What CEO of a company or politician could say something like that? I mean, that's true fearlessness. And uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of a mistake when people die, but you know that to get to the next step, uh, <laughs> you know, you, it has to be done. It, um, maybe that's a bad analogy, but, <laughs> um, but I, I like mistakes because they're they're just awesome learning experiences. You know, you you know your limits. You test your limits. Um, 
you humble yourself. And there's no better way to uh, evolve, I think, in my mind. Dying for design, <laughs> Eric Chang. <laughs> I, I think no matter what it is that you approach in life, the, the more experiences you have, uh, I, I think, the more you bring to that moment in your life, whether, whether it's creative or, or not creative. So, you know, the more you see of the world, the more you experience different things, the more you stay open, the better your perspective is on, on, on what it is that you're being addressed with, you know, immediately. So the, I think the more you, one gets out there, the more open you are to suggestions, the more, uh, the more you experience, it can only enrich your, your creative output. You know, the, the furniture industry is age old. I mean, it, it can only be reinvented in so many different ways. And I think coming at it from an outsider, uh, perhaps that give me a, just, a, just a slightly different perspective um, that I hope to you know, bring something more refreshing to the table. Um, and I think that's, that's really necessary. And I'd, I'd love to see other people do the same thing, not just for this industry, but other industries. Um, I think that's really important um, because it's so easy to get stuck in our ways. And it's a very slow moving industry. You know, I'm constantly, it's like pulling hair. Like, I'm just like, I want to move faster. Um, but I, I think having a slightly different perspective um, is really, really helpful. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of young people coming out uh, in the industry today that are hopefully on that same path. Um, truly talented, uh, creating really unique products. So there's one in the audience today, John Pomp. You guys don't know his lighting. It's absolutely incredible. But he's also doing so much for the lighting industry in our, in our field. So um, it's really kind of refreshing to see other people come to the forefront. And my, to just add to what was said, I think um, this idea of you know, diversity and differences is great in, in any field, but in design in particular, it, it can really um, enhance you know, the overall world of design. I think you know, these days where design is so ubiquitous, it's easy to just go out and, like someone said, furnish a mid-century home with mid-century architecture, but um, it seems like um, there's so much more that, that can be done these days, and um, by, by kind of t uh, taking from different sources, it, it only makes, I think, for a more rich experience. This clip is absolutely one of my favorites. First, it features moderators Mallory Roberts Morgan and Frances Anderson. I am a huge fan of both ladies. Second, their guests on this panel are hilarious and make me laugh. Third, Diem, Design Intersects Everything Made, was an annual series presented by the West Hollywood Design District. I I'm not sure the reason they don't host it any longer, but I wish they did. Anyhow, we recorded almost all of the panel conversations between uh, 2014 and the last year they, they held it, 2017, from the West Edge Design Fair. This, this one is from 2015 and features comments from Anderton, Darren Gold, and, uh, and then Christopher Farr as they discuss the status of LA and its relative quote-unquote hotness or coolness, seemingly, as always, according to media outlets that reside well east of the LA area. This was from a panel called Is LA Losing Its Cool from Diem in 2015. That I think what set us off, what might have set a number of us off in this room, 
was an article that appeared in the New York Times and um, it was called Los Angeles and its booming creative class lures New Yorkers. And this article inferred that LA had arrived because Brooklyn hipsters now, quote, snap up brioche tarts at Proof Bakery in Atwater Village, visit gallery shows at Shepherd Ferry's <laughs> subliminal projects in Echo Park, or settle in over barrel-aged rye cocktails at Bar Stella in Silver Lake. And they scarcely realize they're more than a stroll away from McCarran Park, except for the 70-degree sunshine tickling their cheeks in February. Well, I used to write for the New York Times. Mallory and I know each other from back in the day when we both did, and I used to have my copy edited to put in snark, snark against L.A. So how times have changed. How times have changed. And you probably all remember this article set people off. I will say it was one of several articles that were starting to appear saying, many of them in the New York Times, many of them in the New York Times style section, say, essentially saying, LA's arrived. The Parisians think it's great. Londoners think it's great. So her house is here. This gallery's open. This fashion house has just got to open in LA. And on the one hand, it's like, fantastic, we're a global city. We were laughed at for all these years. And on the other hand, it's like, ooh, is LA losing its sort of LA-ness, its weirdness? So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about. There was a lot going on back then that was very cool. And I just feel that now that this window has been opened onto all these things going on in L.A., people are sort of acting like L.A. wasn't cool before. No offense. <laughs> oh, but, you're feeling but, but it was. But it, it actually has been cool for a long time. It's just now people are noticing it. And people are putting a spotlight on that. And with that comes a certain expectation comes sort of a more institutionalized uh, vision of everything. We're now, as opposed to being apples and oranges, we're more, you know, apples and apples. We're another global city that we're being compared to other global cities. And not that that's new either. None of this is new. It just feels that there's a new uh, look at it. Yeah. Christopher. I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm speaking from a slightly different perspective. Um, I'm a victim of Cool Britannia from London, and that's what the press called London in the late 90s. And I arrived here in 2003 uh, with my wife and two boys, and we were here ostensibly for one year. And when I told people, um, my groovy, cool London friends, that I was going to live in Los Angeles, the sniggers and the smirks and the sneering that uh, was horrible. They couldn't even hide it. As British people are very good at hiding stuff like that. <laughs> you know. You know, not even passive-aggressive. It was like, why are you going to Los Angeles, Chris? And, and so I just thought, well, I've got a repost for this. I've, I think I'm looking for a place that is vacuous and as shallow as I am. So I, I kind of was looking for the perfect match. And I looked at the, my global map and I thought, well, Los Angeles is obviously the place to go. And, and that shut them up because I kind of beat them to the punch. There is a quantifiable difference between 2003 and where we are right now. It was a place where you could escape, where you could find cheap rents, where you could get a, a really cool studio. And I've seen the emergence and growth of it in the same way that when I had my gallery in, Los, in uh, Notting Hill Gate in London, I was there before it became cool. And suddenly when the press says it's cool, as Darren says, it's over. When you cover design in L.A., you have to talk about set decorators. They not only cover the landscape, but they also design for a page, a script, real or imaginary characters. Set decorators don't have, in most cases, a real person 
to question about their style. So they create the character's style from within. Here's set decorator Casey Fox, whose work you've seen in Speed, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and 40-Year-Old Version, talking about what goes into creating the character. Well, that set could take place on a freeway or in a triage center out in the middle of a busy urban area, or it could be inside an apartment. So those various sets that make up that script all need to come to fruition. So whether it's a busy, I mean, comedies tend to have more sets than, than dramas. Mm -hmm. Comedies, they're moving quite quickly. So unlike forgetting Sarah Marshall or he's just not that into you, we'd have 40 or 50 sets possibly within a, a six, uh, you know, within a six month period to, to create. Um, television might be six to 10 sets a week. So it's always very quick, and, but it depends. What does that character need? Is, it, is, it, uh, is there a lot of action going on? Is there a particular prop? Is there a colorway that you're going to be heading towards, like Legally Blonde 2? There were certain colors that had already been established on Legally Blonde 1. Um, you know, is, is the character a minimalist? Is the character a hoarder? Is the character, does the character collect art? Um, do you actually have access to art or do you need to create the art for this character? So there's lots of different aspects of a particular script that you, that you need to mull over and, and figure out very quickly. Right. Well, in Legally Blonde 1, they kind of set a certain palette. And so when we created her, her apartment for Legally Blonde 2, we knew we were going to be strong on certain colors, pinks particularly. She, Elle was very fond of pink. Elle loves pink. <laughs> but then by the time we got to uh, her work and her living, this, this apartment, uh, uh, this condo, was for a sorority group. And there were many sorority condos throughout the world. So this particular one was in Washington. So we wanted to play up the fact that there were other sorority condos elsewhere in the world, and it became a little more sophisticated. She's no longer, um, she's now in Washington, and so she was playing with the big boys, and it needed to be more sophisticated. If you're not sure what set decorators do, Rosemary Brandenburg talks about the business itself and what set decorators do within the production. Not just the production, but the creation of the concepts, like an interior designer would, but different. If you are an interior designer, this might change the way you view your own process. Well, you could almost compare a film crew and an art department to a little bit of almost, you can use military tech terms. So, you know, we have these departments, it's all divided up. Um, when we first all started in films and TV, a lot of times we were like puppies and everybody did everything. But when we do these bigger projects, it's all divided up. We have these pieces of the pie that we take care of. And, but unlike a pie, it's really disorganized and we have to really have a lot of conversations about who does what. Um, if you want to get down to the brass tacks, once the set is built and painted or the location is chosen, we do almost everything else that, you, that the camera would be looking at and the audience would see. We don't do things that are off camera, grips and electricians take care of that, but we do things that you actually see. So any light fixture that's in the, in the movie or TV show, any furniture, all the character stuff, all the detail, 
um, carpeting, drapery, it becomes a laundry list. But what goes into that is a lot of research and a lot of detailing. We have to break down the script. We have to think up ideas that we're going to present to this group of people that we are responsible to. There's, it's not just a production designer and a director. We could be dealing with producers, actors. An awful lot of voices come into play. Um, so we're responsible for coming up with concepts and presenting them, just as any interior designer might. Um, but it takes a, takes a lot of, of thinking. A lot of research goes into it. I do a lot of period work or futuristic work, so it can involve an awful lot of, of con concept work, a lot of research into what really used to be, but then we have to select from that. You can't just do a slice of life. Um, and then, of course, then executing it. As you said, we're department heads. So there's budgeting that we have to take care of. We have to figure out um, all of the detail in terms of scheduling. It's a complicated job, and it all happens very quickly like dominoes, because in movie business, we do multiple sets, movie and TV, we do multiple sets that uh, all have to happen in, over a course of a schedule. So unlike an interior design project, we really are compressed on time. And um, everyone has financial constraints. I think we all have that in common. Um, but in a nutshell, Anything inside the walls is usually a set decoration job. William DiBiazio is a set decorator who has worked on shows like Pretty Little Liars that went on to have a huge stylistic appeal. Cult following, really. What's really interesting is how set decorators can take the story and make the style popular. What if we thought about our homes and offices not as simply places to live, but sets that tell our story? How might the narrative change? Well... Here, William is talking about his approach to sets, props, and the story. You're always looking to embrace trends. You're also looking to uh, perhaps create trends. Um, I created bedrooms and spaces for an audience that was very involved with the show and wanted to replicate those same worlds in their own spaces. At early became part of Pretty Little Liars, I realized that uh, as I wandered through the prop house, if I saw something that I knew was going to be a key prop that I would use in a future episode, before it actually was in the set and you knew what it meant, I would photograph it in the prop house and tweet it out to the audience so that they would see something and they would have a sense of something that was coming but have no idea how it fit into the story. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendôme Furniture. Design culture, it's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendôme products are simple and elegant, contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendôme spirit 
and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Van Damme mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Van Damme before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in L.A. or online at vondom.com.